If you'd like to borrow a Bible and follow along with us this morning, just go ahead and raise your hand. The ushers will bring you a Bible. Just raise it high, and you can borrow a Bible to see what we're doing this morning if you'd like. We are glad that you are here this morning uh, at Evans Bible Fellowship worshiping with us. It's Easter Sunday, and maybe you are assuming that on Easter Sunday, the sermon is going to be about the resurrection. You're right. Over the past 2,000 years, Christians have proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the belief that he lived on this earth, died on the cross, was buried, and three days later came back to life. It's been proclaimed over the last 2,000 years, and we believe that has yet to be duplicated, this great, amazing event. So for our purposes of Easter 2013, I'm going to do something a little crazy. Typically, when you hear Easter sermons, you may hear sermons on the proof of the resurrection or the meaning of the resurrection or how the resurrection should impact our lives and the way we live. I'm going to be a little crazy this morning, and I'm going to talk about all three. So let me put the three different aspects we're going to talk about this morning up so you can follow along with us. Resurrection, how we know, what are some proofs, how can we understand this, that it actually happened. Resurrection, what does it mean if he really came back to life? And the last one is resurrection, how to live. Now, I know that many of you may not be familiar with the Bible at all, and that's totally okay. We're glad that you're here. But we're going to turn to a passage in the Bible, and if you can't find it, look onto the person next to you or look in the table of contents. But let's turn to a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to understand what we're talking about in these three different aspects of the resurrection. We're not going to cover all of 1 Corinthians 15 because it is a long chapter with 58 verses. I'm not going to cover them all, but go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you can find it. If not, that's okay. You can still follow along. This book that we have before us in Corinthians was written by this uh, guy named the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it to a church in Corinth, and that's why they're called the Corinthians. So get this. This church, you you know, churches are not perfect, right? Well, this church had some issues. Some within this church thought in their minds, and they were teaching, that in the future there would be no physical resurrection of the dead. What we teach as Christians is that one day at the second coming of Christ, uh, our bodies, yes, these dead bodies that will die one day, will be raised. For those of us who believe, when we die, we go to be with the Lord. But in the future, when Christ comes back, our bodies will be joined with our spirits, will be with the Lord forever. So there'll be this future physical resurrection at the second coming of Christ. Well, get this. Some in the church said, no, no, no. We're so super spiritual now There's not going to be this future resurrection of the body. Sure, Jesus rose from the dead, but we're not going to rise from the dead. This life is pretty much it, and we're super spiritual now, and we have already arrived spiritually. And what Paul does in this book, specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, is that he politely goes off on them. And he says, if there is no resurrection for anybody else, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised then we have all types of problems. 
And so Paul is going to make this detailed argument that says that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, and he's going to give some proofs, and he's going to show that the resurrection has meaning and that the resurrection should impact the way we live. Now, as I talk about these proofs and the meaning, and I also talk about how it impacts the way we live, what I'm trying to get you to understand is don't just look at this as an intellectual exercise, because the events of 2,000 years ago are meant to collide with our personal lives. It did for the Apostle Paul. He was on a hunt for Christians to get him arrested, and perhaps getting Christians killed, and the Lord Jesus collided with him and brought him to faith in Christ. About 20 years ago, the Lord was setting me up for such a collision. I was 19, and I was going to a school in Russellville, Arkansas, called Arkansas Tech University. It's kind of on par with Northwestern. <laughs> no, not at all. It cost about 700 bucks a semester to go there. It was amazing, high-caliber education. But while I was there, I was living my life uh, as a non-believer, as a non-Christian, as a freshman. And uh, at one time, a, a camp called Canacook came to campus to interview uh, athletic Christian counselors. And I, was like, I, I played tennis for them, so they wanted someone to coach tennis at their camp. And when they came to ask me questions about being a Christian, I lied. That's how I could try to get the job. And so they uh, asked me things like, now, I was very promiscuous back then, very sexually immoral. And they asked me questions like, have you ever had premarital sex? And I said, no. And then they asked me, um, what book of the Bible are you studying? And I was really scrambling in my head. And I told them I'm studying, I was studying the book of Paul. <laughs> Just for those of you who don't know the Bible, there is no book of Paul. And the, the guy said, well, which part of Paul? And I said, all of it. <laughs> That's pretty much how the interview went. I thought, there's no way I'm getting this job. But this is a collision course that God was doing in my life to take the historical events of 2,000 years ago and just collide with me personally. And I'll tell you more of that story later. But I I'm just wondering. I think it's really possible that some of you have shown up here you know, just for whatever reason, maybe someone invited you, you're minding your own business, you're being polite, you're, you're going to church on Easter, just a variety of things that may have brought you here, not, not bad reasons, but perhaps God brought you here to take the historical events of 2,000 years ago and have this grand collision with your life here on Easter 2013. I've got to believe with some of you that that's going to happen today. And so as we look at these what tends to be intellectual things, they're very personal. So let's go ahead and jump in with point number one, resurrection, how we know. Resurrection, how we know. I know some of you want mathematical proof. Like when we start talking about proofs of the resurrection, that somehow we're going to do mathematical proof to show you beyond reasonable doubt, beyond everything, that this for sure is absolutely mathematical proof. I know some of you, you want that. But what we're going to talk about this morning is, well, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? How do believers actually know that? Are you sure you know that? 
Well, well, part of the answer is we know that he rose from the dead. Believers will talk like this because God opened our eyes. He opened our hearts. We responded to the word of God that speaks of his resurrection. And that's why we're believers because that's what the word says. And God has opened our mind and our hearts to see that. So part of we talking about how we know, we talk that way. But in another sense, we can say, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. We can talk in that spiritual sense, but we can also say we know that Jesus rose from the dead because it fits and makes sense historically. We don't show up to church and just say, whatever, whatever. We just leave our brains on the shelf. We don't care. But we say it fits and makes sense historically that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That that makes the most sense to explain the surrounding events. So let me take you back in history. I I don't usually talk sometimes in these terms, so I really don't want to lose anyone today. I don't want to be too confusing. I want to be very clear so that my my young children can understand. I want you guys to understand. So I'm going to take you back historically, and I'm going to really pounce on one simple question. So please nail down this question. It's this. The New Testament Christians, they believed in the resurrection. How do you explain that? From a historical point of view, like if you're just going to investigate it historically, how can you explain that the early Christians believed in the resurrection? Like even if you want to leave spiritual stuff out of it, how can you explain that they actually believed that? In preparation for this message, I was attempting to read a really big book. It's probably about that big, so you wouldn't have to read it. Let me put this book up for you, okay? It's not, I don't agree with everything in this book, but it's by N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Sometimes he says some crazy stuff, but this guy is, from a, from a clear historical perspective, I think he nails a lot of things. What he does in this book, he explains the history of resurrection, not just with regard to Jesus, but what was the belief in the resurrection before the time of Jesus? What was the belief in the resurrection at the time of Jesus? And what was the belief in resurrection after the time of Jesus? Not, not just saying with regard to Jesus, but just resurrection in general. What did the culture believe about resurrection? This is very important. He argues that Jesus shows up on the scene in a culture where the educated pagans and most knowledgeable and people with common sense, the pagans, did not believe in physical resurrection. Dead people coming back to life, that's ridiculous. Second point, but what about the Jews? They're spiritual. Did they believe that dead people can come back to life? Well, the Jews during that time thought resurrection meant way future like future resurrection of the righteous, not of an individual dying and coming back to life. That that wasn't so, that was very fuzzy to them. They think you're kind of out there, but a future resurrection of the righteous. And so in this cultural context where pagans would think resurrection's crazy and Jews would think resurrection is future, you have these people called Christians. And these Christians are saying that this dead guy named Jesus came back to life, and you've got to kind of scratch your head and say, why do the Christians claim that? 
Why do the Christians believe that? Remember, don't get all spiritual on me. From a pure historical perspective, why were the Christians proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus? So some historians go back and they say, okay, let's try to figure this out. And some may argue that the Christians believed in the resurrection of Jesus is because they made up the story. I mean, we all like fairy tale endings. That's why we watch Disney movies. We want things to turn out well. And so we have this, this great story of a great teacher, this rabbi, Jesus. And man, it's such a bummer that he got killed. And he was just so good. But let's tack a fairy tale ending onto the story that he came back to life. And that way, we can all live happily ever after. Sound like a good idea? Is that probable? Don't get spiritual on me. Historical. Is it probable that the early Christians tacked a fairy tale ending on the end of Jesus' life? That he came back to life. What a great ending to the story. Is that probable? Well, here's the problem. If you're a good historian, I think that you may be giving the disciples way too much credit to even do that. Because the disciples. I mean, idiots would be a strong word, so I wouldn't call them idiots, but clueless? Maybe that's a better word. During Jesus' life, he would talk about his death and resurrection, and the disciples would be like, what are you talking about? At one time, Jesus talked about his death and resurrection, and one of his disciples rebuked Jesus. Uh, take a note here. Not a good idea to rebuke Jesus. All right? So he rebuked Jesus for talking about his death and resurrection. So these guys were not expecting resurrection. In fact, you're not going to believe this. After Jesus actually rose from the dead and the women ran to tell them, because women, they always know what's right. They run to the disciples and they tell them, and you're not going to believe what the disciples said. Let me put this up for you. This is in Luke 24. Luke 24, 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. That's from the disciples. They hear about the resurrection, and they don't believe it. I want to make sure you get this. The disciples, they're not initially connecting Jesus with resurrection. No one was looking for the resurrection. The pagans say, you're crazy. The Jews say it's a future event. And here you have these disciples that start talking about the resurrection. Is it likely that they made up the story when they were just so clueless? And is it likely that they would make up a story that would get them killed? I'm all for fairy tale endings, but I'm not going to make something up and get me, get me killed. Are you kidding me? So the question that we have from a purely historical perspective is this. Why did the early church, the early believers, proclaim the resurrection of Jesus? Why? And I think the most sensible historical answer is it's because it actually happened. Nothing was forcing them to say it. They weren't even thinking it. I think it's because it really happened. And that's what we're going to talk about today in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's jump in with verse 1. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Maybe you hear Christians talking about gospel all the time. What do they mean by gospel? We, we just mean it's the good news. It's the good news of Jesus. He died and he rose. And we can be reconciled to the Father through faith in him. So it's, a, it's the good news that we should not distort. Paul continues and lays out the specifics of this gospel. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is a great description of the gospel, that we are proclaiming as Christians that the sinless one died in the place of sinners, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. So why the belief in the resurrection? Well, of course, the Word of God tells us. But get this. Maybe maybe you've never heard this before. Jesus just didn't die and rise and a few women saw him and a couple of disciples. The Bible tells us, and he didn't have to do it this way, but he did. The Bible tells us, I'm going to ask you the question, how many people saw Jesus? Over 500 people. Over 500. Look, look, look at the next verse, verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. It's saying that the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, and some of those people were still alive. They're like, yeah, just go ask them, and they'll tell you about it. Yeah, he appeared to that person. Yeah, go go ask that person. They'll tell you. Yeah, go over there and ask. I just want to make sure you get this. It is the resurrection appearances of Jesus that shaped the early belief of the early believers. It's that he actually did come back to life. The tomb was empty, and there he was, put two and two together. Oh, wow, he is actually alive. So if anybody ever says, let's study historically why the early church believed in the resurrection, I think the most obvious conclusion you will come to is it's because it actually happened. I, I, I know I'm a pastor, and I know that you say you're supposed to believe in the resurrection, but historically speaking, I cannot think of a better explanation that the, that, than it actually did happen. It actually happened. And you want to know how radical this is? It would be like someone who was like a hardcore Democrat or a hardcore Republican. You know who you are, whatever side you're on. I mean, you are like nailing every issue as a, a Democrat. You're boom, you're boom, you're boom. This issue, and you, in your mind, there's no way that you would ever switch political parties no matter what. And then you switch. And you think, well, man, something really must have happened especially in this day and age, to make people switch political parties. You're like, there's no way this is going to happen. There's no way the disciples would have ever thought, hey, let's say Jesus rose from the dead. That sounds like a great ending to the story. Never would have happened unless 
He actually rose from the dead. When we come to church, we bring our minds and our brains with us to think through these things. If you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here, but we encourage you to use your mind and and think through these things, study these things, investigate these things. We want to do that together here. We do not look down on you because you're not a, a follower of Christ right now. We want to encourage study because we are not scared of the historical events. We're not scared. We believe they will back up and show the claims of the risen Christ. So how do we know? We can look at historical events and be encouraged that Christ has indeed risen. Now, let's just say that you want to give me the resurrection. You say, okay, it actually happened. Well, the next question is, so what? What does it mean? What does that even mean? So what? Good. Good for Jesus. He came back to life. Good for your Messiah. It worked for him. What does that even mean that he came back to life? So what? All right, let's, let's keep going. Back to Paul's argument. Let's jump down to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. (laughs) So if our message is Jesus rose again from the dead bodily form, uh, that's pretty much obsolete if no one rises from the dead. Because if the dead aren't raised, then Jesus has not been raised either. And the ramifications of a non-resurrected Savior are colossal. Let's continue to follow Paul's hypothetical argument. Verse 14. Stick with me here. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised. He raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. And so if Christ hasn't been raised, faith is pointless. What I'm doing right now is pointless. I should quit my job. If he didn't really raise from the dead, what is the point? The joke is on you. The joke is certainly on me because I've devoted my whole life to preaching. The joke's on all of us. This past week, I had a great conversation, interaction with a, a woman, a very gracious woman who was, uh, who was Muslim, and we were talking about the gospel, we were talking about Jesus Christ, and I was telling her about the death and resurrection of Jesus, what she knows about, and she was telling me that, that herself, as a Muslim, she did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We can talk about the death at another time, but she did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And she told me that she reveres and respects Jesus as a great prophet. And I was trying to convey to her that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, I'm not going to revere him and I'm not going to respect him as a great anything. All right? I'm not going down that road. So Christians go down a different road. If he did not die and rise, all is called off. And you may say, well, why? Couldn't he just be a great teacher and a great rabbi and someone to follow? No, because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, get this. I have no hope. And you have no hope. And that's the way Paul argues. Look what he says at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So if there's no resurrection, there's no resurrection to reject Jesus and its faith is pointless. And now he gives the reason. He says it right there, end of 17. 
you are still in your sins. <laughs> if Jesus didn't rise, and that cross thing we always talk about didn't work, and we're still in our sins. And if we're still in our sins, then we're still separated from God. Wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't it be terrible if my message to you was today, all of you are still separated from God because Jesus did not rise from the dead. Go enjoy your Easter egg hunt. I mean, that'd be terrible. That's not what we're proclaiming. And I don't know about you, but I find that as I age, I notice my sin more and more. As I get older, I thought, wow, I'm going to get older and realize that I sin less and I'm less sinful. But I find that as I age, I'm seeing, hey, I really see the depravity and the depth of my sin. For those of you who are married, maybe in your marriage, when you got married, you start to see just how sinful you really are. Because marriage kind of makes you, you know, love someone else besides yourself. And and we have a a church full of young couples, and I love to ask the couples. I go up to the guy, and I say, how is marriage going? And, you know, we're kind of a theological congregation, and so the guy will always answer me theologically. He'll say something like, before I got married, and then I got married, I never knew how sinful I really was. That's the way the guy answered. And then I asked the girl, I say, I say, how's, how's marriage going? And she says, before I got married, I never knew how sinful he really was. <laughs> I mean, this through each phase in life, we, it brings out the depth of our sin. For those of you in here, I know some of you, you have children. When I had my first son, I, I just could not believe how selfish I was. I'm like, oh, I've got to change your diaper again i got to feed you again. i got to get up with you again. And then number two child came. And I thought, oh, I am just doomed. I am so selfish and sinful. And then number three came. And I started to see the blackness of my heart. And then number four came. And I thought, man, I am a sinner worthy of death. And then number five came. And, I I mean, that one just killed me. Just put me in the ground. And then number six came. It's just throwing the dirt on. I mean, I just (laughs) see in the depth of my selfishness and the depth of my sin. And you may see it, too, as you age. And you start seeing more of maybe some guilt, some issues you've been hiding. And you see you really are sinful. But what if you had no fix? What if there was nothing to fix that? What if we have a dead Messiah who stayed dead and we're still separated from God with no solution and there's still condemnation and guilt piled on us? That would be a terrible existence. And so what Paul is arguing, what we're arguing from the Bible is that because Jesus did come back to life, the good news is sins are forgiven. What? Because he came back to life, sins are... How does that work? Like, give me the formula. Like, the, how does that even work? So, he came back... What's the connection to me? So, please, if you're not stuck with me at all today, try to listen to this next part. This is the way Christians explain, in some sense, on how the resurrection proves that sins are forgiven. Here, it goes something like this. There was a guy named Adam. Adam and Eve. And the claim is, in Adam, all of humanity dies this physical and spiritual death and separation from God. 
You get that? So it's like God's holy, we're not. So we, we die physically, and there's a spiritual separation from God forever because it's the punishment fits the crime, and it's justice for sin. That's not the end of the story. We say Jesus entered the picture, and Jesus is one of Adam's descendants. But he obviously fared no better, did he? Because what happened to Jesus? He died. He ended up dying. But this is where it takes a twist. Because if he was a sinner, he would get physical death and separation from God. But the good news is, is that he got up out of the tomb, which, which proves that there's something different. And he doesn't seem to be like one of Adam's son. He seems to be the spotless, blameless son of God because he doesn't have to pay for his own sins. He comes back to life. And the claim that we're making as Christians is that since he doesn't have to pay for his own sins, he can actually pay for our sins. And this is why we're calling it good news because he came back to life. And the claim that we're making is that if we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus, then the son of God, the spotless one, through his death and resurrection, can take care of our sin. So God's wrath and punishment goes on him and not on us. And the really good news is you don't have to jump through hoops. You may have grown up in a religion that says you do this and this and this, and maybe at the end, if you're lucky, you'll get into heaven. I hope it goes well for you. But what we're claiming as Christians is that you don't have to jump through hoops. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ, and he'll forgive your sins. He'll turn away God's wrath. He'll give you perfect righteousness because of who he was in his death and resurrection. What does it mean that he rose? Well, our claim is your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. So the argument we've been making is, well, how do we know that Jesus really rose? Well, we make a, try to make a historical argument, and then we say, well, what does it mean? Well, it means you're, you can have your sins forgiven. And then we come to point three. So what does this have to do with our living? How to live? I'm going to wrap it up here by talking what I think about two good things that can encourage us in our living. And one has to do with hope, and another has to do with risk. Look at verse 18 and 19. Jump down to verse 18 and 19. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So basically, if you're a believer who's clung to your faith in Christ to the end, well, if this is it, then you just die, and all your friends and family have died before you who knew Christ, and they didn't rise, and they won't rise in the future. They're not with Christ. But our argument is, since Jesus has risen from the dead, we're saying that when we die, we'll go to be with him, and one day at his return, our bodies will be united and we'll be with him forever. Basically, we're saying that death is not the end. And if death is not the end, you don't need to be afraid of death. It's, it's okay if you came here this morning afraid of death. I mean, it's kind of a freaky thing to think about. We're going to die one day every single person in here, unless the Lord comes back before. But you're, you're going to die. And, it, and it's, I think it's okay to be a little scared about how you're going to die. I'm not a fan of that part. But the, the idea of the ultimate death, we don't need to be afraid of that. 
And so back in 2008, I introduced you to something. In 2008, I introduced you to my death. And I'm going to revisit my death again here five years later. This is when I'm going to die. My personal day of death is Sunday, <laughs> July 30th, 2045. I have that many seconds to live. I mean, there's a place you can put this in on the Internet, and I'll tell you. I like how I'm going to die on a Sunday. Maybe after my last sermon, boom. <laughs> but we're all going to die. And it really hit me this 2045. That's not far. Not far. Time flies. It's not far. But I don't need to be afraid. And if you're a believer, you don't need to be afraid because our death, ultimately, separation from God has been dealt with. And Paul tells us, if you want to jump way down, verse 54 and 55, near the end of the chapter, he makes this statement that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So those who believe will not be separated from God forever. Our hope does not end in this life, but goes to the next one with the Lord. And as I've been making the claim today over and over again that when we die, we'll be with the Lord. But in the future, when Christ comes back, we will have resurrection bodies. Another sermon can deal with the details of that. But for those of you who are here this morning who are suffering in your body, maybe mentally, emotionally, physically, you have a daily suffering in your body, I want you to lean into this hope that one day you will have a new body, a new glorified, fixed body. So we can lean into that hope that though maybe the rest of our lives we're going to have physical problems, one day that will not be the case. And we can have hope and this full redemption, victory over death, and new bodies thanks to the resurrection of Jesus. And the last thing I want to talk about in this with regard to living is not just hope but also risk. So turn back to two more verses, three more verses, and we're done. This is 30 through 32, how this fuels risk. Paul's line of reasoning fuels risk. Verse 30, he says, um, Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why take risk for the gospel if this life is all we got? Instead of risking, we should be partying. We should be eating and drinking, for tomorrow we die. Why in the world would we try to help those who are being oppressed if we can get hurt physically? Why in the world would we go around the the world and tell people about Jesus at the risk of death. Why take all those risks? What's the point? And the point Paul is making, the risk is worth it because Jesus has risen from the dead and one day we will rise also bodily form. And so when we take these risks, they're worth it. You may have noticed that this Easter, this year, there's a little extra elbow room in our, in our congregation this morning. It's because for the most part, most of our students are gone. It's spring break. And a significant portion of our students have gone down to Florida. And they didn't go down to Florida to get drunk or to get high or to party and have lots of sex. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they can do whatever they want. Go for it. Go party. 
go eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But since Jesus did rise from the dead, they put that stuff aside, and they're there to tell people about the love of Jesus, about the good news that they can be reconciled to God. And some of those partygoers may mock them, make fun of them, spit at them. It gets more violent around the world. But the risks are worth it because one day we will be with the Lord. And I, I've, I, one of the things I get so concerned about in my life and I'm concerned about in your life is that you're totally missing that. You're totally forgetting that this is not it, that there's, there's a next, there's a next one with the Lord and you've stopped risk. And so right now in your life, all you want to go after is comfort and security. And I, I'm, I really fear for myself. And so when I see it in you, I'm dogging on myself. I'm afraid for myself to pursue comfort and security when the Lord told me that this is not the it. There is future. And I think the resurrection of Christ in our future time with him and our future resurrection should fuel risk. So my brothers and sisters, do you find yourself edging toward comfort and security or do you find yourself stepping out with more and more risk that seems to be unpredictable, but it's all worth it? So let's wrap it up. Let's put it all together. Let me show you again, all three. The resurrection. How do we know this happened? Well, we think there's good historical arguments. What does it mean? Sins can be forgiven. How do we live? Oh, we're those who hope like crazy. And we also risk like crazy. But this is not just a little little intellectual exercise for us this morning. What we're trying to argue for myself and for you is that the events of 2,000 years ago can collide with us today. And as I told you 20 years ago when I was on that campus of Arkansas Tech University, interviewing for this job, pretending to be a Christian, God in his collision mercy decided to get me hired at this Christian camp in Missouri called Kanakuk. I get there. Everybody's acting like Christians do. I didn't know how to do that stuff. I didn't know the lingo. I didn't know the evangelical talk. I didn't know the Jesus talk. I was so, so left out. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? I'm supposed to be the Christian counselor. I'm supposed to be the counselor of kids, leading them to the Lord. I don't even know the Lord. Are you kidding me? Let's go play tennis. I don't know anything about this. And then one night, I heard the gospel. I felt so convicted of my sexual morality, so convicted that I don't know the Lord. I'm just playing a game here. And that the events that really happened in the cross and resurrection God is colliding with me, brought me to repentance and faith. And so I think it is quite humorous that this foul-mouthed, sexually immoral man of 20-plus years ago is preaching before you today. That is almost hilarious. And I'm wondering if God brought you here today for this collision. It doesn't have to be where you walk up here and talk on the microphone and jump and say hallelujah. You can if you want to. But the offer is, hey, this stuff really happened. There could be real forgiveness of your sins and really eternal reconciliation with God, like forever. And there's no hoops to jump through. I know you're, some of that is, what, what, tell me the hoops. Tell me what do I need to do. Just put your faith in Jesus. 
turn from your sin and your old ways and put your faith in Jesus. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to come here. Like right now, with your eyes wide open, you don't even have to pray. You just like in your heart and mind, you can say right now, Jesus, I am done with me. I want to trust you. Maybe that collision will happen. Maybe it's happening right now. Maybe God's waking you up, getting your attention. Jesus is real. He's calling you to himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder from your word. It's not about us. It's not about our little games. It's not about us faking ourselves out historically. We brought our minds here. You wanted us to. And your word has come to life and the spirit has stirred us. And Lord, we're going to stake our lives on the, on the claim. You died and rose again. You, you paid it all on the cross and all to you we owe. And our sin's gone. And we want to live like those who actually believe it. We want to hope like it and risk like it and go all out. Some of us are going to die sooner than later, but all of us are going to die. Those who are afraid in here because they don't know what's up, they don't know what's going to happen to them, they're hoping that all their hoops they're jumping through are going to save them, just show them they can rest in your finished work. They can believe you and put their faith and trust in you and turn from their old ways and be saved by the God who loves them so much that he sent Jesus to die for them and rise for them. Thank you for colliding with me and many of my brothers and sisters in here. May you do that for all of us and awaken us and may we repent and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.